Good morning. I bring you some greetings. Trish is in warmer climes right now, but wish to be remembered. And I had a conversation with one of the elders from the church that we were part of when we were in Zambia. And DJ asked me to assure you that his church would be praying for us this morning. And he sent his greetings to you on behalf of the church. Um, I guess I'll start out by whining. Uh, first of all, as I said, Trish is traveling this week, so I've been a bit out of sorts, as I usually am when she's away for any period of time. Um, but I also find myself in a difficult position this morning. And the reason is that you've heard the expression between a rock and a hard place. Well, I'm kind of between a rock and a hard place as I teach this morning. If you were here last week, you heard Brian's seminar on faith. It was a remarkable teaching. And if you weren't here, and if you haven't heard it, you need to go listen to the video. It's very powerful. Okay. Next week, the, well, this coming week, we have Friday night, and then we have Resurrection Sunday, um, which is probably the most significant celebration in the church. If Jesus wasn't raised from the dead, we're all wasting our time. To compound things, there's a potluck lunch after this, which means I have to be very careful about my timing or somebody's meatballs will overcook. I'm stressed. <laughs> I was going to call on Jared, but Jared's not here this morning, so I'm, I'm calling on my authority on theological Christian sports. Ben, can you tell me what this is? It is a tea. A golf tee. All right. What is the purpose of the golf tee? To hold the ball. To hold the ball. I would go one step further and to say, the golf tee is to elevate the ball above all the obstacles around it so you can get a good whack at it. Amen. I'd like to this morning suggest that um, there are two objectives in what I'm setting out to do. One is to tee us up to be prepared for what the end of this week will bring. Um, to tee Brian up, hopefully I'm saying things that will just lead right into what he's going to be teaching about at the end of this week. So that's my purpose. Um, the story of the triumphal entry is one of the few incidents in the life of Jesus which appears in all four gospels. If anybody's taking notes, it's in Matthew 21, 
Mark 11, Luke 19, and John 12. You'll find portions of it in all of those. An interesting exercise that I had never done before, but I undertook for this purpose, was to actually do an overlay of all four of the accounts, one on top of each other. And it provides a very rich mosaic of what was going on at the time. So if you want to go away and do something interesting after this, um, of course, after the potluck, um, you could try that. Read these accounts in all four and just sort of mentally stack them one on top of the other and see what comes out. Uh, it's, it's really interesting. Uh, in order to speak to you, I had to pick a gospel. You know, it's the old card trick. Pick a card, any card. Well, pick a gospel, any gospel. What I decided on was Matthew. And so I'll be reading to you from Matthew 21, 1 through 11. Now, when they drew near to Jerusalem, I'm sorry, am I yelling? Okay, I, I can hear really well. Uh, now, when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage at the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples saying to them, go into the village in front of you and immediately you'll find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you'll just say, the Lord needs them and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet saying, say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put, put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up saying, Who is this? And the crowds said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth in Galilee. Let's pray. Father, as we look into your word this morning, we pray that your Holy Spirit would stir our hearts, that we would not only hear, but understand and be moved to action by the recounting of the events that took place over 2,000 years ago, but which are so vital today. We thank you, Father, that we can come together. We pray for those who are not here, and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, let's talk about Palm Sunday, or also known as the Triumphal Entry. I'd like, to, I'd like to address this in three segments. I'd like to talk about people, the people and events that were taking place. I'd like to talk a little bit, a little bit about the prophecy. And then I'd like to talk about some of the practical aspects of what I have shared with you. Um, it's, it is distressing to me at times how many people today 
dismiss the folks of Jesus' time as primitive or backwards. Um, I suppose it makes diminishing the scriptures and their relevance easier for some. However, this attitude limits our insights into the activities of the New Testament. By way of support, I would say art, architecture, and literature of Rome, Greece, and the Middle East still survive and are still relevant today, over 2,000 years later. 2,000 years from now, what are likely to be the conversations that center around iPhones? So much of what we consider relevant in our lives today will not even be a punctuation mark in the years to come. And yet, we have God-breathed scripture that has stood the test of time, the wisdom that still guides as well today as it did in the time of Jesus and before. All right, let's, let's talk a little bit about, I, I've tried to keep this light so it'll move quickly, but let's talk a little bit of what's actually going on in Jerusalem. The activities taking place in Jerusalem during Passover were customary, they were traditional, and they're foundational to the ongoing practice of Jewish society and religion. What's happening when Jesus rides into Jerusalem, it, it's, it's not a new thing. This has been going on for a long time. The celebration of Passover, it was originated long, long before. And it resonates historically with the, with the liberation of the children of Israel from Egypt. So the feast already has a tone of national liberation. When people come to the feast, they're remembering that this, they were brought out of Egypt they were delivered. Today, every major city in the world where the practice of Judaism is not banned has a temple. But at this time, the only temple was in Jerusalem and everybody had to go there in order to satisfy the requirements. As you know, ritual sacrifice of animals was an integral part of the celebration. During the feast, Jewish people from all corners of the civilized world came to Jerusalem to participate. The city was seething with followers who had traveled by boat and by land to be in Jerusalem at this time. Some estimates I found in my research suggested that there were hundreds of thousands of people in Jerusalem. The number boggles the mind. I mean, I, I think the city of Portland has what, 70,000 people? I think that's right, 70,000 people. We're talking hundreds of thousands of people. Um, just think about the Passover meal for a minute. The Passover meal was celebrated by the sacrifice and consumption of, of a lamb. A lamb, the estimate is that a lamb would feed about 10 people. 100,000 people would require 10,000 lambs. 
To make it even more complicated, the lamb had to be slaughtered at a particular time in a particular place. You couldn't kill it in advance and freeze it and then bring it out at the right time. All of these lambs had to be handled in a particular time in a particular place in order to be acceptable for the Passover meal. All right, let's change gears for a minute. As Jesus goes into Jerusalem, this is the first time that he acknowledges publicly that he is the Messiah. Prior to this, he's kind of been going, look, just keep it under your hat for now. You know, we don't want to make a big deal out of this. It's not my time. The, the miracle happens with the donkey and the colt. He's riding into town and... Um, People are calling him who he is, the Messiah. Well, there are many reasons that Jesus' entry like this, there are many reasons that Jesus' entry like this and at this time were significant. One thing is certain. No one can say it didn't happen. History History, not just the Bible, history carries an undeniable record of the activities of the entry and all the following week. You know, as Americans, we love the spectacular. Superheroes, the Patriots, the Red Sox, maybe both. Um, the Super Bowl halftime show is one of the most watched spectacles in our country. In the first century Palestine, this would have been a spectacular event. Jesus's entry, not just the celebration, but Jesus's entry to Jerusalem would have been a spectacular event. Matthew tells us, and when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up, saying, who is this? Well, they might ask. The priests during the celebration were busy indeed. I found this next quote to be laughable. Any similarity to any circumstance or person you know is purely coincidental. Quote, it would be physically exhausting work made exhausting not for the least reason that most Jews had very strong opinions on whether the priest was doing his business properly or not. Sometimes reading ancient sources is like overhearing family quarrels in a distant room. I mean, people who weren't priests at all would have absolutely firm opinions on how the priest should be doing their business. A priest who would be a member of a particular group, say a priest who had a pharisaical uh, orientation, might think that something should be done one way, and a priest who didn't have that orientation would think that something should be done another way. Everybody is looking at the scriptures, and then on the basis of tradition and improvisation, doing what he thought was the correct way to do it. Sound familiar? All we have to do is pick up a newspaper. We have opinion and emotion 
running rampant all around us. But we, as God's children, have the scriptures. These are the inerrant word of God, and we can always go to these and always understand. The leadership of the temple. Let's talk about the leadership of the temple, the central point of Jerusalem, the center of social life among the Jews. The Pharisees and Sadducees were in pretty consistent disagreement. The Sadducees only considered the Torah to be authoritative and so could not countenance the resurrection. At this point, they're in a, for a rude awakening. They were the conservatives. The Pharisees were the liberals and embraced resurrection and a lot of other ideas not found in the Torah both claimed the high ground and authority. So take a deep breath, turn your imagination loose, and let me try and draw a picture for you. Jesus. Jesus, who's been doing all of these miracles, accompanied by eyewitnesses to the raising of Lazarus from the dead, is entering the city. The road into Jerusalem is choked with people. You know, when I was in Sunday school class, we had the little flannel graphs, you know, and we'd put, there's the donkey, and there's Jesus sitting on the donkey, and then you'd have a half a dozen people waving palm branches and everything. They didn't have enough flannel to put all these people on the flannel graph. We're talking hundreds of thousands of people have descended on Jerusalem. People, people and more people are pushing into the city and people are pushing out. You know, as Americans, we, we kind of value our personal space. We, we get uncomfortable if somebody stands too close to us on the bus. Not so in the Middle East. In the Middle East, you got, I mean, people are going into Jerusalem like this, you know, surrounded by people, packed with people. There are animals everywhere. People are taking animals to the temple. People are bringing re remains of animals from the temple. There are tents and cell stalls all along the entry into Jerusalem. There are tents set out beyond because forget no room at the inn. You can't fit any more people in Jerusalem. So they're all camping outside the city. It's absolute pandemonium. Now, you've seen what it's like sometimes after the fair comes through or whatever. I want to know who went out there and cleaned up after all these people. There had to be a mess. I mean, just the animals alone. Can you imagine the, the mess that's out there? This, the scene is chaotic. And this is where Jesus shows up. The vast majority of the people who are there, the vast majority of the people who are there are Jewish. And they're familiar. They're there for the Passover celebration and they all know the teaching and prophecy of Messiah. They would have been taught 
since they were children. They are hailing Jesus as the one who will deliver them from the Roman occupation. Now Jesus has completely embraced the truth that he is Messiah. He's not contradicting anybody on that point. Now speaking of the Romans, where are these guys? I mean, these people are occupied by Roman forces. The, the historical documents would suggest that camps all around Jerusalem would send their troops into Jerusalem to be sure that there was no unrest. You've got this huge spectacle that's taking, outside, taking place outside the main gate. There's not a single mention of a Roman anywhere in the whole thing, which is probably a good thing, all things considered. If this were to happen today, can you hear CNN and Fox News going at it over the significance of what's going on? Yeah, you might well laugh. Let's talk about the prophecy for a second, and then we'll double back. Zechariah 9.9 says, Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See your king comes to you righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Now, when I was growing up, you know, we're all focused on Resurrection Sunday, right? When I was growing up, it was all about Jesus riding into Jerusalem on the donkey. And the reason is because Zechariah 9.9 is quoted in the scriptures. Um, but it really doesn't go quite far enough. I mean, lots of kings have visited Jerusalem. Lots of palm branches have been waved over the years and so on. The idea that a VIP is showing up in Jerusalem is not a new thing, but there's something new about what's going on here. Let's look at verse 10, and I was, in, I was encouraged that Tom read it today. Verse 10 says, I will take away the chariots from Ephraim and the war horses from Jerusalem, and the battle bow will be broken. He will proclaim peace to the nations. His rule will extend from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. He, he who? He the Messiah. He the Messiah. Now verse 10 is clearly about war apparel. He, he talks about the chariots. Chariots were instruments of war. They were the battle tanks of that time. He talks about war horses. He talks about battle bow, which was a big bronze reinforced bow that could shoot arrows long distances. These are instruments of war. And the prophet is saying that these will go away. You can, you can see how common people would misunderstand what was going on here. I mean, they're desperate. The Romans were not nice people, and they would very much like for them to be gone. Can you see their confusion? The people who are groaning under the heel of a brutal Roman occupation are absolutely primed for a leader who will deliver them 
from bondage. Well, I would be too. I would be too. Jesus rides into the highest concentration of Jews on the planet, and his arrival is like pouring gas on a flame. Every Jew has been trained from youth in the Messianic prophecies. They know Messiah when they see him. So here we go with this great mass of humanity being carried along into the city with expectations, of high, with expectations high and getting higher. Get ready, get ready. Messiah is here. At this point, not even the apostles really get it. They don't understand what's happening. But I'll bet they're having a lot of fun. I mean, can you imagine being there with Jesus? They didn't do selfies back in the day. But if they did, it would be, hey, Jesus, smile. You know, they'd be taking pictures of themselves with the Messiah, right? Let's talk about the practical for us. It's a week before the Passover celebration. Why are all these people in Jerusalem? Yeah, I know for the Passover, but why a week early? When you think about it logistically, it just doesn't make a lot of sense. It's really inconvenient to be there. The principal reason is that all these people are showing up early, a week before the celebration in Jerusalem, because they need to purify themselves for the Passover meal. They have to go through these rites of purification for the Passover meal. Now, I've taken the following quote, and I've taken chunks of it, from a resource that I found concerning Jewish ritual purification. It's from a guy, um, Samuel, Samuel Ungerleader, and he's the professor of Judaic studies at Brown University. And Jesus teaches at the temple in the week before Passover. The reason everybody's there is because everybody, I assume Jesus too, is undergoing the ritual purification that's required so people can be in the correct state. No, not just morally or religiously, but actually with purity so that they can eat the Paschal lamb. Impurity is assumed by Jewish law. It's a natural phenomenon. People move in and out of states of purity and impurity, in part because much impurity is tied to biological rhythms. You incur, you incur impurity by doing things that God actually enjoins Jews to do, like having babies. Bearing the dead, which is one of the most important commandments within the religion, then, as now, is something that because of contact with the corpse, or even being in the same room with the corpse, one would be in a state of impurity. Herod, Herod, he's a crook. <laughs> you know, he's horrible. Herod, even though he had a very complicated family life and predatory political manners, not a nice guy. Nonetheless, in the palaces he built for himself, built pools to purify himself. 
Being concerned with purity is one of the normal things that a Jew who choose to be religious would involve himself with. So all these people are showing up. They're, they're going through all this discomfort, all this frustration, all this difficulty and expense um, to get there in enough time to be able to go to temple and purify themselves. Now here we are, we're days away, we're days away from celebrating the death and resurrection of our Lord. If they go through all of this aggravation, the question I have is how do we purify ourselves? How do we bring ourselves to a point where we can worship properly at this, the greatest of our feasts? You know, ours, ours is a spiritual relationship. Ours is a spiritual relationship with our Heavenly Father. And while your pew mate might be happy that you used soap this morning, the word says that God looks at the heart. I see somebody nodding over there. It may be the first time this week they did it, but apparently they used soap today. In a recent conversation with a sister Christian, someone that I respect greatly, I was asked to be prescriptive in my call for preparation for worship, to tell people what they need to do in order to purify themselves for the coming celebration. I was encouraged to call for specific activities and details, and I appreciate her wisdom. At the same time, I was raised in a religious tradition where everything was prescribed. All the, all the prayers were written down, all the times to be in church were clear, all of the activities that took place in church were written down. I didn't come to know the Lord until I gave up the dependence on the prescription and came to the Lord myself and said, you are my prescriber. Tell me what I need to do. So I resist the temptation this morning to say, okay, you need to go and read all four Gospels, Jesus' um, death and resurrection. You need to be able to quote it and everything with thanks to Adrian for last week's remarkable performance, and not a performance, a prayer, when he recited all of that. It was amazing to me. It's encouraged me to go back and get back into scripture memorization, but I, I, I digress. I'd like to challenge you, brothers and sisters, whether through a prescribed process, if you, if you have a method that you're most comfortable with and you go through, and that brings you into communion with God, by all means, use it. But it's going to take a conscious effort. You're going to have to focus over the coming week. You're going to have to set time aside. You're going to have to reflect. You're going to have to confess and repent. And by God's grace, we'll come here next Sunday prepared to worship together. While we no longer must conform to the directives of ritual purification under which the Jewish people were led, we are 
nonetheless responsible to come before God, enter the communion, the communion relationship in faith and with a clean heart. At this time, these people would not have known the verse in Matthew 5.8, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. That hadn't been written yet, but they would have known very well. Psalm 24, verses 3 and 4. Who can ascend the hill of the Lord? He who has clean hands and a pure heart. Father, thank you for your word. I pray that it touches each one of us. We pray for your guidance as we prepare to celebrate Jesus' triumph a week from today. We pray these things in his name. Amen.